Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Is Love Blind Edition. It's Wednesday, March 4th, 2020. On today's show, Netflix is really diving into the reality space with both hands, following up the circle with Love is Blind. We discussed this mutant variant of The Bachelor with Slate's own Daniel Schrader. And then literature, art, pop culture all have dealt historically with the idea of an epidemic. It is so rich symbolically, uh, just as it is rich dramatically. Today, each of the panel has brought in an item to discuss in light of the COVID or COVID-19, the coronavirus. And finally, what is the fate of the tomboy in a kind of would-be, maybe post-gender world? We discuss a series of articles. And uh, we're joined today by uh, Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello. Just one word for our listeners. Ah. <laughs> As you can hear, there is some construction happening here, so we will try to keep the sound to a minimum, but you may hear more of that. Julia, the fact that you can put up drywall while doing this podcast just never ceases to amaze me. Very impressive multitasking. (laughs) Yes. Um, And we're joined by Dan Coyce, who's in D.C. right now. Hey, Dan. Hey, everyone. Glad to be here. Dan, of course, is a staff writer at Slate.com and is the author of How to Be a Family, The Year I Dragged My Kids Around the World to Find a New Way to Be Together, uh, a recent and wonderful book. Okay, what, should we dive right in here? Let's do. All right, digging right in. A group of attention-seeking basket cases, Cancun, severe pronoun issues, softcore porny soundtrack, and what purports to be a controlled experiment in love and attraction. We are back in the badly misnamed land of reality TV. In this instance, Love is Blind is on Netflix. It takes 15 men and 15 women, segregates them from one another by gender in Ikea-bedecked pseudo-schmancy digs and lets them interact with one another across genders only in confessional-style pod rooms uh, in which they can speak to one another, but they can't see one another along the way to trying to answer the question, is love blind or really... I would put it slightly differently. Should we bypass the arguably most trivial thing, arguably most trivial thing about a person, maybe at least in the long run, and start with conversation instead of looks and blah, 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 proceed to their human essence, yada, yada. Let's listen to a clip. This has made me so open, I feel like. I actually am with you on that. Like, I enjoy how... I enjoy it. Yeah. We get to the essence of each other, and it's not like, oh, I'm blinded by his blue eyes. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, well, this is really what I want. We're laying it all on the line. Yeah. You tell me who you are, honestly, and I'll tell you who I am, honestly. And if you accept it, you do. And, and if you, you do, don't, you you're don't, just not for you're me. You're not for me, yeah. Yeah, this has definitely changed my life. Five days in, and I know who... I want to be my future husband. I can't believe it. It's only been five days. Oh my God, I've had meals in my refrigerator for longer than that. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) I've spent every second of this experiment focusing on finding my wife. And I think I found her. I feel immense 
attraction to her, and I've never seen her before. <laughs> I know Lauren is a one, and I don't need to do any more searching. Cameron, I'm Cameron, ready to post Cameron. <laughs> okay, uh, we're joined by Daniel Schrader, who is a podcast producer for Slate. Daniel, you and I, we we already have quite a history here, but but boy, are we going to add to it today. <laughs> I mean, first first of all, I got two things to say to you, buddy. The first is, fuck you for making me watch this. And the second is, <laughs> if you so much as spoil one iota of it, you are deader to me than disco. <laughs> Wait a minute. How much did you watch? <laughs> I watched three episodes Shit. and I'm so fucking hooked on this thing. Schrader, you... Schrader. Well, let me just say, I'm thrilled to be back. That is the best news of 2020 to hear that you are hooked on this show. And let me just say, Steve, if you're only three episodes in, then you haven't even gotten to the actual good parts of the show. You're not. I even... mean, I, I got to the end of episode three, dude. I mean, jeez. Oh my god. And also, by the way, like being addicted to something, you know, if this were Adderall or crack or porn, I mean, you know, it's not. It's not necessarily a vote in its favor, but but why don't we turn this into something like a traditional chat show format here? Daniel Schrader, tell me why you like the show. I love Love is Blind because it is the it's the perfect type of reality show where you throw a bunch of pretty enough strangers together and see what happens. And so I, I think that what this show really is doing is um, more interesting than just the pods. Of course, I do think that this is really what uh, Yorgos Lanthimos meant to make when he meant th made the lobster. But also, I think this is like, the the pods are just the first part of it. Once these people get to know each other and end up proposing to each other through walls, which is pretty wild, they then go on a vacation. But then we get to what you haven't even gotten to yet, which is really the meat of the show, which is them moving back to Atlanta, where they all have to live oh. in apartments together in a shared building. So they're all neighbors. And oh, then man. they go back to visit each other's homes that they live in and meet each other's families, discuss things like their finances and how they are going to actually move forward as if they are getting married. It is delicious. I mean, the spe A, the species is doomed, but B, I have high hopes for Lauren and Cameron. I want to dwell on something very quickly before we open it up further, which is that, yes, they move beyond the pods very quickly, but the pods do seem to be an instrument of this kind of metaphysical certitude that they arrive at, that they are actually in love with one another, which I understand could be a performance for the cameras. I mean, the, the premise of the show is you don't proceed beyond phase one unless you partner up, become quote unquote engaged, sight unseen engaged to this other person, and then you get to go to Cancun. But that's the weird thing, Daniel, about reality TV. It's, it's hard to argue that these people overwhelmingly aren't having something resembling real emotions. Well, I, I think the the pods actually do a very interesting thing. And I, I don't think it will be spoiling it to say that later on, after the people who have gotten in relationships move out of the pods and get back from Mexico, they uh, uh, two of the couples end up having fights. And during those fights, they find that the only productive way to actually express their honest feelings is to be in oh separate rooms and not look at each other while they're <laughs> oh fighting. God. And so part of this makes me think maybe this is the way people should fight. Maybe this is the way people should emote. They should be like, there's something about 
that security of being alone and expressing your feeling to someone without having to see them and without having to see how they receive your reaction of that yeah. feeling that really opens you up to be more honest with yourself. You know what the show is an enormously uh, powerful argument in favor of? Talking on the telephone. <laughs> I, I have no idea what that is. Right. Explain, that is what they are doing. They are having long, passionate telephone conversations with another person, uh, except for that they just happen to be in two separate rooms talking through a wall instead of over a line. But these relationships are built the way that uh, once upon a time, many relationships were built, whether by letter, by telephone, or whatever, right? You spend a long time away from someone, perhaps you're a soldier, off at war, communicating with, with your lady back on the home front. Or perhaps it's someone you, let's just say, met at the University of Wisconsin band camp <laughs> in 1991 and then spent a full year just talking to you solely over the phone and via making mixtapes uh, and you build the relationship that way. Like this, this is a very specific argument in favor of, as Daniel says, working things out without having to face each other and having all the baggage mm. associated with that like – coming up all the time. You can actually get a lot done and be very free in your emotional communication and very vulnerable when you're not facing that person. And the telephone is really great for that. But I thought you were going to say this was a great argument in favor of podcasting as a, <laughs> as a medium of emotional in intimacy, which I, which I also think you could argue. Telephone conversations, but with only one side working. <laughs> well, actually, I, to to the to the millennial among us, I I would ask. So one of the conceits of the show is, oh, in the modern life, oh, the one hilarious part of the show is that Nick Lachey and Nick and Vanessa Lachey show up every so often to like read terribly from a bad script and preside over the whole affair. And like everyone, the contestants in the audience are just like, who are you? What are you doing here? Go away. But among the drivel that they say is like, in this age of swiping right, uh, so much depends on your appearance. But what if is love blind in this experiment? And mm -hmm. um, and it, and I, it struck me that actually one of the things that seems kind of uh, useful to nerds about modern dating is like yes, you have to put a photo up, and and that is like a precursor. But there is this, but there's texting, like text. There's there's typically a period of text flirting before you go actually bother to meet someone in person, which is not unpod-like in its in its exchanges. Or at least there is a verbal part typically in the in the in-between of the I basically like that person's picture and do I like the 3D real person of them. And so I felt like the physicality of modern flirting was slightly overstated. True or false, Daniel? Well, I think the the issue that I've found with that is that um and I've thought about this a lot in terms of online dating, in terms of hookup apps, that when you are when you do just have a photo and then you're texting, I find I can be much more like I could I can sound smarter and be more playful on text than I am maybe in person, but also it's less genuine because I can play a character as opposed to them hearing my voice and hearing the type of person I come across as. And so for all that we can glean a lot from a photo and a series of text exchanges, there is something lost that you don't really understand whether or not there will be a click there until you meet in person. That's why like a lot of times dates don't go well from online apps and things like that because you think you click 
online, but you're really only clicking with this one version of them. And that like being able to even just hear the voice component, you don't realize until you hear it how much that even can impact your um, perception of who a person is. And so in some ways, I do think it would be a better experiment in terms of uh, fostering uh, stronger and more lasting relationships if there was some sort of photo exchange just so that people knew like this is the person I'm talking to but then of course you also wouldn't get the deliciousness of this type of drama that we get or mm. um, anything like that but the, I, I will say that the show makes a assertion on behalf of um, the idea that first impressions based on looks in person or or you know on a, on tinder right is there that's so conducive to a kind of false positive um that that something is gained affirmatively gained like dan for example you know you before you went to band camp you had been in the physical presence of this other person and at some conscious and unconscious level you know you'd made a, a pretty primal decision about your you know, attractionness to them or your openness openness to their attraction to you that is completely absent from this show. I mean, how much do we credit the idea that there's that something inherently trivial and false happens in those first moments of seeing and being with someone that this show, I grant you, is not a tightly controlled social science experiment, but it has assiduously decided that you are just not going to be physically present to this person before you form a conversational attachment to them. And I just wondered, did that strike any kind of nerve or is that just gimmicky reality TV? I I guess if you're talking about false positives, not to spoil too much for you, Steve, but so many people got engaged in the pods that they had to cut some people out of the later versions of the show. That's and so crazy. not oh every God. single one of those engagements has resulted in a forever marriage. I, I just think like, it seems to me like the, what the show is teaching us is that when you, when you give people the chance to engage conversationally for a long period of time, and then yes, also combine it with the artificial pressure of a reality show in which some people just want to succeed by the terms of the show, whatever those terms are. And other people are driven by the, you know, the desperate desire to be partnered or married. Um, you create or, a situation in could, which, yeah. in which way more people form bonds, which then fall apart once they actually mm-hmm. encounter each other in the real world yes. and are faced with sort of the real world questions that arise. And, and that's like, fascinating and delightful, but I don't think it's an argument against the old way of meeting people face to face and, and figuring out whether that physical spark means anything to you. You know, it strikes me that we are taking the like moral proposition of this show quite seriously, (laughs) like possibly (laughs) slightly more seriously than is warranted. I mean, it's true what you say about the telephone. Like I feel like I remember the most dramatic moments of my high school life entirely involved like long, long, long phone conversations. Oh my God. Of, of I would die to have one of those. Meandering right flirtation. Oh, to the point where like your head, your you'd have your phone would be like pressed against your face and be kind of like sweaty, but you and your ear would hurt, but you but you like couldn't stop talking. Um but they they do all shroud 
they all end up taking this experiment, quote unquote, which they keep referring to very, very seriously. On the other hand, one of the pleasures of the show is that they do seem sincere and to have made some kind of sincere bonds. The other is that they all seem trapped in this mass hysteria where they think it's plausible to become engaged to someone they've just talked to for five hours in a pod or 16 hours or whatever over five days. And they keep saying things like, am I crazy? But I just really love him. And it's like, no, you're crazy. Like, you don't have to marry him on this Netflix show. You've now met someone nice. Go move in together. Spend some time together. See if you're really a match. Like, the artificiality of like, and the next step is, boom, you're walking down the aisle. Like, the the gaudiness of the stakes is, 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 uh, is, is ludicrous. Let me just say very quickly, I, it's not that I take the show or its premise seriously at all. I take seriously how seriously they take it, though. Right. And right. you'll notice, Daniel, that there are an inordinate number of very devout Christians, self-professed devout Christians on the show. And when you really look at the premise, or you look at the way in which the premise is being taken seriously by the contestants, they clearly believe that there is a human essence which is separate from the physical body. And and I I really I challenge you to tell me that I'm not I'm wrong when I say this is they believe that they are zeroing out the incidental features of humanity and talking soul to soul and I I don't believe that that's what's happening but I I am entranced by how seriously they take the possibility that that's what's happening. Yeah, I mean we're definitely not taking the show more seriously than it takes itself, obviously. But I think that pointing out the religious aspect of it is very important. I was actually about to say that uh, I think an aspect of this that it's important to keep in mind is that this is set in Atlanta. These people are all live in the South and most are from the South. And being from Atlanta myself, um, it's a it's a, it's a a very religious uh, area. My dad's a minister. And so I, I get the motivation because this is so many of my um, friends back home's motivations of just that need to fulfill a relationship requirement as part of this attempt at life or whatever. And so I think a lot of these people are feeling that stress, particularly someone like Jessica, who is 34, which by Southern standards could be thought of as old. And so she needs to settle down with someone. And it's laughable to think that she would want to settle down with Mark or Barnett because both of them are such messes on their own. But I, I do think that there is something that this show is getting at and some reason why everybody that encounters it is so entranced by it. Like yesterday, I was in the kitchen at work talking to someone about the show and then somebody left the studio and just immediately joined our conversation because they had been watching it too. It's this show that like seems to have attracted so many people to it because we all want to figure out what that other thing that soul outside of the body typeness is if there is anything like that we want to know that maybe we could find a, a blind love like this um honestly i would try the show i don't know if i would actually try the show but um I- <laughs> <laughs> that was a binding contract <laughs> uh, can i zoom out for a moment to talk about the show as a viewing experience uh i could talk about this show for a hundred years however it is just awful to watch the show The show is Mm. not actually enjoyable to watch in long stretches. I had to get up and walk away from my laptop like every 10 to 15 minutes. But there's one part of the show that is just insanely good, probably the best TV I've ever seen in my life. And that is the 
tease at the end of the first episode when we've met all the characters and we understand the situation. And then it gives us maybe sort of a perfect two and a half minute short film that shows us all the insane shit that is going to happen over the next eight episodes or whatever. You know, it's like, have you ever been in a room with black people before? I didn't deceive anybody. I can't go through with this. Please stop recording this. Drinks thrown in faces and brides yeah. falling on their asses. <laughs> I would watch that forever. I would watch that for so long, even as I chafed against having to sit through like the long interviews and conversations between people that seem just interminably boring to me. And so it strikes me that what is great about this show uh, is that it is on Netflix, that it is the subject of an enormous amount of conversation and writing on the internet on sites like Slate and elsewhere, and has a robust Wikipedia page so that you can delve into all of that, find out everything you need to know about the actual fates of these people on the show, and then dip into the series just to the extent mm -hmm. that you want to yes. on your laptops, so you can see that in incredible breakup in episode three. So you can see what happens in the weddings and the finale. So you can watch the teases at the end of every episode. And you like you can cur curate this little viewing experience for yourself, for myself, that made a show like this not only tolerable in a way it otherwise never would have been, but in fact intensely enjoyable for those like little bursts. Um, so I have two – answers to that. First, I would say, yes, I love diving deep into this show. I certainly wasn't the person who was looking on Google Maps to find out where their <laughs> shared apartment building was because I'm not familiar with uh, the highways in Atlanta. But also, this is my plea to make everybody watch reality television at 1.5 speed. Uh, I know it's right? like <laughs> Yes, but trust me, it is the so sort of like Alvin and the Chipmunks style. <laughs> it's not pitched up any higher. It's just faster. <laughs> that is that is the pace at which every show should be consumed. That is a reality show, particularly this one. It's how I watched all of it. Amazing. I mean, I just oh, I gotta I, say, if I, I had learned that trick, I would have watched the finale by now. I'm I'm like nine episodes through, but I didn't quite make it all the way. I'm pretty into it, and I'm still riding the fast forward ten seconds button pretty hard. I mean, this is this this show would have peeved the living daylights out of Dana Stevens, who, if something is a half hour, she wants it to be fifteen minutes. You know, nothing deserves to be an hour long. I do not understand why this thing is. What is it? Forty five minutes to an hour, Daniel? Mm -hmm. That's crazy for this format. Well, you could make it thirty to forty five minutes then. That's exactly right. Or you right. can right. you can create your own one and a half hour experience, which is very intense and great, and then talk <laughs> about it forever afterwards, which is what is actually the best thing about it. All right. Can I, without trying to spoil too much for Steve, can I just propose that we briefly discuss, though, the fan favorite union of Lauren and Cameron? And I want to ask you completists, I their relationship does not fill me with happy joy because she seems so tentative and he's like got this steadiness of intent and and is kind of steadily coaxing her along toward the aisle. But at so many points, she seems kind of bewildered by where she's found herself and a little bit resistant. And, you know, of course, the, the idea that 
in if love is blind, you might find yourself in an interracial couple that you hadn't previously contemplated. And doesn't that speak to the, you know, the ability of human soul to connect beyond life experience and everything else? Like I, I, yes, in, in sort of structure, it is a great story, but in practice, I do not find their tender encounters squee inducing. I find them slightly cringy because I feel like she's genuinely, I, I think part of it is just that they both seem relatively sane compared to reality contestant types, whereas Amber and Barnett seem more like people you might Oof. find on The Bachelor uh, and they seem more like real people. But then because they seem like real people, you're like, well, why wouldn't you do the real people thing and just freaking like slow your roll and get to know each other and see if this love really can flourish? <laughs> like, I don't, did, did, are you guys just completely head over heels for them in the way that all of America seems to be? I have thought a lot about them. I I really did like them a lot as I got swept up in the show. But as the season played out, I definitely became more hesitant with my love of them. I think they are, of the all the couples, they're the best. They are the um, clearly the sanest and um, the most attractive, in my opinion. But also... I think the problem with them that I've encountered is that I think what you're highlighting about Lauren not being as in it as Cameron is spot on. Part of what like makes me not suspicious but worried about Cameron is that he seems so physically like attached to her in a way that at first seems very like romantic and loving and he just wants to like show her physical intimacy. But at a certain point, it becomes this sort of um, insecurity that it, it comes across as that he is so scared of losing her that he can't let her go physically. And I think that speaks to probably a his past relationship that he was coming out of before this. And so he's still kind of recovering from that. So I think that like he having come from a long-term relationship is so much more invested in making this work than she is, not because she doesn't love him, but because she might not have had this like deep previous long-term relationship to compare it to in a way. So um, also Laura Bennett pointed this out to me yesterday on Slack. He just doesn't ever make any jokes. He's not funny. There's like some Ugh, lack deadly. of humor to him that is really disappointing and makes him less attractive. That's, that is characteristically well observed by Laura Bennett. The four of us are in separate locations, right? Yeah. We're all in our pods. So we're speaking soul to soul to soul to soul. <laughs> I thought there was some special thing. I think, Daniel, the next millennial bait reality TV show has to be people tapping out messages to one another from their cells, prison-like cells, and we'll see if people can fall in love that way. Just it's by, getting a little like, too close to Parasite. By semaphore. Just do, 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 do. Yeah, well, I think that's Morse code, isn't it? But, but oh, um, yes, sorry, yes. Um, anyway, I think the flags right. would be more fun and visual than Morse code. Morse code <laughs> could be a podcast. <laughs> uh, pitch it. Netflix is buying everything, they tell me. All right, Daniel Schrader, it was a real joy to have you back on the show and to not see you, but hear you. Thanks. It's always great not seeing you either. <laughs> All right. Now's the moment in our podcast we talk business. Dan, what do you have? Business? Do I have business? Yes, I do. In Slate Plus this week, we will be talking about a piece from the New York Times from a woman whose ex-boyfriend is now dating Lady Gaga. I believe the piece 
is weak sauce. Julia believes the piece is great. We will argue about it, and then Steve will declare that I am correct. Back to you, Steve. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Tomboy is now stipulated a somewhat anachronistic word. We will get into that. But first, once it denoted young girls who refuse stereotypical dress, attitude, behavior, activities, uh, all traditionally associated with girls, once there were tomboys aplenty in pop culture, their message was you do not have to be feminine to be female, as Lisa Selen Davis said in a recent New York Times piece on the subject. Uh, she goes on to describe her attachment as a young woman, girl, to Joe on the facts of life, uh, and how Joe was the culmination of what uh, Christy McNichol and Jodie Foster and Tatum O'Neill had wrought in some iconic movies of the 1970s. And then Joe gave way to Sporty Spice, Xena, and Buffy. And being a tomboy got folded into the attitudes of the Reagan 80s. You could be powerful, but you also had to be pretty. Uh, Dan, for our, let me start with you. You've written a book about parenting and you do a podcast on parenting. For our quite limited slice of the country, country gender nonconformity, uh, being non-binary, are now pretty much quotidian aspects of being a parent. For much of the country, though, they have doubled down on the idea of gender as something essential about a person rooted in biology and expressing itself accordingly in culture. I mean, one example I can never quite get my head around are these gender reveal parties. Um, what struck you about this argument about tomboys? Is it is it thinking forwardly about gender or backwardly about gender? Where, where did you come out on this? As a parent, I definitely feel as though ev having every sort of different kind of gender expression available to my kids and to kids in general seems really valuable to to have them all out in the world to have them all as visible as possible and so the tomboys of the 80s that um lisa davis's article discussed are a real archetype that i don't see so much in pop culture anymore and that bums me out i might push back a little on the idea though that the that other parts of the country have fully doubled down on a kind of gender conformity. I mean, I take your point about gender reveal parties. I think for many parents, that's still that delineation still matters. But when the, that kind of determinism comes up against the, the messy reality of kids growing up, I have found in my experience that even in, you know, non coastal elite places, uh, parents and kids are a lot more likely to embrace a lot of different ideas along the gender spectrum than they were, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, just to take as an, as an example, the town that I, that we lived in, in Kansas, when I was writing the book, um, you know, 10 years ago, it was unheard of for kids in that high school or middle school to embrace any kind of gender nonconformity and the school wouldn't even allow like a, a lesbian, gay and allies school group. Now that group is going strong. There are trans kids in the high school. Obviously, there's still difficulties along with that, as there are in any kind of high school environment. But even in those places, ideas about gender are evolving, I think, a lot more quickly than they are among teenagers than they are among yeah. older people. All that is to say, I do miss the tomboy as 
a particular kind of uh, widely accepted pop culture archetype, a kind of character who served as a sort of shorthand for a bunch of complicated ideas that kids in particular are just starting to get their hands around at around the age they're watching something like the facts of life about nonconformity and about how the embrace not only of the other genders, quote unquote, clothes and interests uh, can represent a a kind of yearning for a not only a different life for yourself, but a, a different kind of world in which you can live. Mm. Julia, what do you make of that? I mean, I take Dan's point that the the rest of the country, especially under the age of twenty or fifteen, is you know joining in a transition away from highly essentialist notions of sex and gender. If that's the case, isn't a word like tomboy doomed that effectively we're going to move so far away from any essentialist notion of gender uh, as it relates to behavior that um, labeling a girl something unusual or noting a girl for acting like what was once traditionally um, considered to be masculine um, that seems like a thing that it does sort of seem like an artifact of the 19th century that may not last very far into the 21st yeah, I mean, I find it a little bit hard to predict. I um, we I was excited to revisit the subject of tomboys because we talked about them a little bit when we talked about Little Women and and Joe's resistance to marriage and the conventional trappings of uh, the circumscription of a female life, um, and and even began a debate that I think we talked about here, where I asserted that Lizzie Bennet from Pride and Prejudice is a tomboy and. David Plotz aggressively resisted that notion in private correspondence with me and on Twitter. And it it sort of has led me to think about different experiences of tomboyism and how I identified with them as a girl growing up. So I think there's the kind of like jockey sports, I don't want to wear your ruffles and I'd love to just play on the softball team type tomboy. Then there's kind of the Anne of Green Gables, uh, I just can't be bothered with manners and wouldn't it be more fun to muck about in a stream and, oh gosh, now I'm covered in mud, oh no, type of tomboy. You know, I feel like you could put Arya Stark a little bit in that category from Game of Thrones, right? She She's forever grousing about needlepoint and um, the, the the kind of constraints of, of the life bound by her. And in thinking this through, I was just thinking about how much I identified with these tomboy types as, as I was mostly reading them, although I, of course, Joe was my favorite character in The Facts of Life, like whose wouldn't be growing up, even though I was by no means a tomboy. Like I I think that the psychic impact of um, these images of young women who felt constrained by expectation was beyond actual identification. I hated sports. I found it very confusing. I liked knitting. I don't think I ever tried needlepoint, but I, you know, I enjoyed womanly tasks and had basically good manners and was kind of just a good girl, did my homework type. And yet, of these figures of intelligent resistance to expectation were mesmerizing and of course fascinating and and just because I didn't actually want to play softball didn't mean that I didn't feel seen and represented by the full personhood of these women and I think that's that's 
you know, that's what's exciting about the idea that we might not need the tomboy anymore um, is the is the notion that maybe we're entering a, wor- a world where um, the personhood of women is is expected rather than denied. It's really fascinating. I, I would argue, looking at the general landscape, that maybe we're not quite there yet. <laughs> it is really fascinating to me that, as Davis notes in the piece, everyone loves Joe, right? And f- in the facts of life, and everyone found Blair prissy and annoying, even Blair's. Steve, what do you think about this? Do you do you truly get the sense that we are rapidly moving beyond any kind of label like this? Or do you think that labels like this are valuable even if the types start disappearing from pop culture? I mean, I think, you know, I find it, I find it hard to believe we're not going to evolve sufficiently beyond these received gender categories some point in my lifetime that the idea of a tomboy will just seem you know, completely inscrutable almost. I mean, maybe I'm being, I've raised two daughters, neither of whom really went through a tomboy phase, but it's partially because occasionally they acted like what might be called a tomboy in the way they dressed or, you know, the way my older daughter in particular played, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't set against a gender expectation that was rigid enough for it to be perceived as daring or nonconformist in any way, which seems to me, Julia Wright ought to be the ideal here. Um, Julia, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, one interesting critique of the tomboy in one of the articles we read in preparation for this was that it's worth looking historically at uh, what it means to valorize the tomboy, which is that it is valorizing male traits. Uh, and the fact that there's sort of contempt for the the Blairs of the world you know, or I think this was an essay from the New York Times from a couple of years ago, which we actually may have discussed on the show about the scorn that her daughter gets for wanting to wear glitter and lipstick and ruffles and how we still allow, even in, in quite progressive circles, just contempt for the feminine was really provocative. And it made me think about the most radical and exciting thing, thing about Greta Gerwig's Little Women, which is the reclamation of Amy, right? Amy is the Blair of Little Women. She's the the unredeemed Pris, the, the girly frivolity embodied. Um, and the kind of radical reclamation of her and her interests and her thoughts actually strikes me as perhaps the way forward of, of, of reclaiming femininity as classically defined as something to value and valorize, you know, whoever it manifests in, whether it's a, a girl or or anybody who identifies in any way with their gender. I mean, right. And one way to think about, you know, the the power that the idea of the tomboy still has is to think about its more more or less its opposite, right? There's it's certainly even among middle schoolers and high schoolers, it is more quote unquote acceptable to be a tomboy or to be a a girl with masculine traits or even to be a trans boy than it is to be a sissy, right? Or uh or to be a boy with 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 stereotypically feminine traits or feminine dress or to be a trans girl. I do think that even in the more progressive younger generation, the the gender stereotypes and the gender essentialism that we recognize from our childhood still manifests itself most strongly in a devaluing of the stereotypically feminine and a valorizing of the stereotypically masculine, which is to say, 
the even the Buffy's and Xena's that Davis's article points to, while they're feminine in that they are, uh, you know, that Buffy is, for example, straight and she dresses cute and she is uh, traditionally pretty. She's not frilly or ruffly or frivolous in the way that like an Amy is uh, or in the way that that often feels um, sort of traditionally queer. And um, and I and I do see among the kids of my kids generation this interesting hazy line between um, between gender fluidity and the and the and the willingness to accept the female the traditionally feminine in anyone and so it seems to me like there's there's still power in these things positive power and negative power and it's not clear to me that it's going to go away in our lifetimes your kids do resist the traditionally feminine i do yes i think so and i think that there's it's it's a lot even in the high school that my older daughter goes to where there are tons of trans kids and tons of gender fluid kids. It seems easier socially to go in the direction of masculinity than it does to go in the direction of femininity as sort of traditionally thought of. It is easier for girls to express a kind of traditional masculine uh, effect than for boys to go the other direction. Right. And in some ways, femininity is like a more complicated category, right? Is femininity, you know, defined however you want to define it, a natural state of things to be encouraged and enjoyed? Or is femininity the result of super restrictive social constraints? You can't have a job. You have to be in the home. You, you know, your concerns are domestic. You, you, you have these limits and within that you create an identity. So I think it's just a more troubled I mean, you know, I guess masculinity is troubled too. I'll give you guys that. Fine, fine. But um, right, but the way it's troubled is in its oversimplification. That we're all right? we're we're all screwed up by the binary, I suppose. But but certainly the way in which the freedom and responsibility of masculinity is limiting. I don't know. It's it's a valorized limit as opposed to a demonized limit. So it's just hard to know where that goes. But the, but the notion of creating space for and again, this is part of what I, but this is making me love Little Women even more. Part of what was so striking about that is the, is the reclamation of domestic concerns as worthy and important. Tomboys are, as a category, just like fun. <laughs> like in the same way that like boys crossing over into the traditionally feminine are fun. And, they're, and as story tools, they're so useful and delightful coming back around to the question that i think i asked a couple weeks ago which is like name a heroine of literature who's not a tomboy like who who is like yep love it can't wait right (laughs) you know it's always a the like the 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 second sister the oldest sister is the feminine ideal and the second sister chafes like which what who's not that it's just so it's so essential to storytelling. Right. Storytelling is all about breaking like good stories, good narrative is about breaking out of some kind of constricting uh you know, something that constricts you. And so for girls 
for young women in particularly, that storytelling always seems to revolve around that. And so in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, when, when tomboy characters in particular were like the accepted, understood visual archetype of a person who rejects the constrictions upon her and who is doing something exciting as a result, like that was valuable. Maybe one reason we don't see tomboys so much in culture anymore is that, I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's a little bit of a sign of progress that there are other ways to, or other modes that, that read to a mass audience as rejecting the patriarchal constrictions on women yet, yet still being like acceptable in a way that a mass audience will understand. I mean, maybe that's progress that you don't need that visual shorthand. You don't need a sideways baseball hat to convince an audience that a character's desire to be something other than a wife and mother is like valuable and and valid. Well, one model here, right? So uh, my kids have finally gotten into Harry Potter praise JK Rowling for saving me from the endless years of just reading encyclopedias of Lego sets based on Star Wars characters from which I am now happily emerging. Um, Hermione, right? There's a there's a version of Hermione who, well, first of all, there's a version of the book in which Hermione's the hero, so maybe it's not so great that she's the sidekick, but there's a version where she's so smart and they don't believe in her and women wizards can only be blah and this and that, I guess, which is, you know, there, there, I, we just read a scene in which the Slytherin uh, Quidditch team has no women and it's like a sign that they're bad as is everything with Slytherin. I don't really understand why one of the houses just has no redeeming qualities. It seems really weird that they would have structured it that way. But anyway, um, you know, like to have kids who grow up with one of the prime texts of their childhood, as probably kids for the last 20 years largely have, not have one of those classic, like, I'm chafing, but I wanna, but I wanna be more, but what can I do? And just have Hermione's like competence and capability, you know, lightly mocked here and there in her hand shooting up way, but essentially be a given that she's an, an equal participant in all the travails yet whose signature scene is the moment that she puts on a pretty ball gown and is revealed to be beautiful (laughs) no does that happen at the end it's been so long since i read the final book book four man book four (laughs) during the yule ball all right i take it all back i take it all back (laughs) (laughs) she's still she's still less constrained yes maybe that's an embrace of femininity valorizable embrace of femininity i have a question though to what extent does the young adolescent or pre-adolescent heroine reflect whatever wave of feminism we've passed through most recently right so you know maybe during first wave or you know proto-feminism you're just trying to say that the genders don't divide neatly into binaries and action and agency in the world you know, befalls men as a matter of biological fate and, you know, domesticity and motherhood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But then you go through a wave of feminism that's, you know, tougher, angrier, in some crude way, more butch, and breaks through. And then you go through another wave, a second wave, where femininity gets reclaimed, but in conjunction with a sense of agency in the world and on and on and on and on. So there's not some, you know, horrible recrudescence in Hermione putting on a dress. Does that ring any bells with anybody? I have a, 
I have a thought about this, which is that I actually think the the cycle is accelerating. I think that culture made for uh, middle schoolers and younger children now is much more likely to be made by someone who's like 23 than it w- than in our generation when it was much more likely to be made by someone who was like 45. Uh, I just think that the that the the internet plus the explosion of comics for uh, middle grade readers and teens, um, plus just the explosion of YA as a mode, um, has caused a lot of these products to be made by much younger people and to much more closely reflect the actual yes. gender concerns and uh, and attitudes of the, the audience that they're addressing. Right. Well, Dan, because the presumption that a 45-year-old lives in the same universe, in a co- common universe with a three or five or 10 or even 15-year-old is totally out the window. Right. And by the way, they're being quote-unquote influenced by YouTubers who are a year older than them the same age as them maybe a couple years older than so a generation is getting shrunk down to you know 18 months so yeah that makes that makes a ton of sense the cycle is going to go go rapidly faster um i i julia i would just say one more thing as a parent which is that you know we're talking about you know cultural icons on the one hand and the you know inner lives of young people on the other but the most critical engine of social change in this regard is just going to be the reactions of parents when their kids do something unfamiliar. And and over and over and over again, just experientially, it's clear that you sort of just go with it. If you know, if, if your boy wants to play with a truck, you don't have to snatch it away from, from him. And similarly, if, if your girl wants to play with a truck or if words like boy and girl just don't attach in any meaningful way to the way that they're behaving and self-conceiving... It's you just you just have to know what I mean. The difficulty of parenting is knowing what flow to go with and which one to stop. And in the you know, it's so ad you know, it's so ad hoc that there's no rule. This is as non-algorithmic as as um, a life challenge could possibly be. But I I think you get my point, right? Which is this conceptually a parent recoils in horror at something a very small child does, that's what the child internalizes. Right, and I think it's it's interesting to watch this accelerating pace of change. And even, I mean, I love the way you put that, knowing which flows to go with and which one's not. I, I, I remember becoming aware when my boys were four, three or four, they were like doing their preschool interviews or whatever. No, so they were even younger. They were like two and Owen was given like a baby doll in one of these sessions and he was so tender with it and like fed it a little bottle and it just made me realize we hadn't, he'd had like one human shaped doll for a while and then it just sort of fell into a, the a bin we didn't look at and it wasn't something we fostered or didn't foster. Um, and he, he just was like so tender on the spot and it made us realize that every time he looked at a cement mixer and was excited about it, we were like, Ooh, let's get him a cement mixer toy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we got him a couple, you know, figures after that and they didn't totally stick. Although still he's got like a whole universe of, of figures with his lovies and stuffies that, that is, there's a lot of like play acting and, tender talk to all of them and taking care of them that his brother's just less interested in. But I, 
you know, I do feel aware of the fact that I still somehow created a, a gendered flow there, despite never quite meaning to or wanting to. Because um, I can't imagine that if I'd had a girl who was two, she would have never seen a baby doll before. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, if you're interested in following up and looking at the article we were responding to, it's called Bring Back the Tomboys. It's in the February 11th New York Times by Lisa Selen Davis. All right, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Well, let me begin by saying, obviously, we're not the political gap fest. We're not the medical gap fest. We are the culture gap fest. Our job is to look at things culturally. We don't mean to slight any aspect of the story. Also, we don't know right now what we are dealing with in the coronavirus. Is, is it a pandemic on the scale of the Spanish flu? God forbid, we we sincerely hope not. Is it a very, very, very bad cold virus? It does not seem to be only that. Um, we don't know whether we're facing a pandemic or a panic yet, um, but we wanted to talk a little bit about how works of art, literature, pop culture, and otherwise uh, have dealt with the theme of the epidemic. And as Rebecca Onion has pointed out on Slate, Contagion, the Soderbergh movie from 2011, is suddenly in the top 10 on iTunes. The format we decided on, each of us would pick a cultural item or artifact relating to uh, disease, epidemic, pandemic, plague, et cetera, and, uh, and talk about it a little bit. Uh, Dan, why don't we start with you? What, what did you pick and what was it like to read it now? Uh, I wanted to bring in and talk about a novel by Max Brooks called World War Z. It is, in fact, a, a zombie novel. Um, it is a kind of oral history set in the years following mankind's survival of a zombie of a zombie plague and the great war that results uh told by the survivors the story of that uh pandemic the zombie pandemic from the very first cases all the way up to the final victory uh, achieved by a sort of combined force of humanity of the remaining humanity over the zombies um this was turned into a movie, a big hit movie with Brad Pitt that I have never seen because it is, seems way too scary for me. Um, but the movie also seems very focused on the sort of zombie action, the fast zombies chasing people and the battles between humans and zombies. In fact, the, the book is much more focused on 
infrastructure and organization. It's actually a real buffet for nerds like the, like Max Brooks loves having, you know, former generals or former administrators dissecting battle plans and talking about the supply chain and discussing the vectors of infection. It's really about a, a massive organized response to a crisis and the kinds of sacrifices that that kind of massive organized response requires in order to survive the crisis. And in the context of what we're experiencing now, you know, I find that there's such a desire, and this is one thing that Rebecca Onion's piece in Slate talked about, there's such a desire on the part of all of us to, to fit the news into our understood narrative framework, right? We, we always want to try and understand the ways in which the things we are experiencing are like, oh, it's just like that scene in act one of any pandemic movie where someone coughs and then everyone looks at the coffer and you and you and you would start to think, oh, could it be worse than I think? But what's scary about this book isn't isn't the sort of beat of the story progressing along and the pandemic getting worse. What's scary about it in the context of what we're seeing now is is are the ways in which the mistakes in the book that individuals and governments make seem very, very recognizable and foreseeable for our own current situation, right? That in the book, there's an incompetent president. There's a population that distrusts science. There's a Chinese government that withholds information about early cases and, in fact, uh, silences a doctor who diagnoses a very early case. Um, Max Brooks wrote, wrote for the Washington Post last week about his book getting banned in China and how frustrating that seems now in this context. Uh, I mean, no wonder it got banned, but also no wonder that as I reread it, I found myself just thinking, oh, it's not that I am worried that the disease is going to spread exactly the way the disease spreads in this book. It's that I'm worried that we're going to make the same mistakes that the fictional characters in this book make, that there are going to be breakdowns of infrastructure and organization that are totally foreseeable, but that we have set ourselves up to make nonetheless. Uh, Julia, what uh, what did you pick? So I actually prompted by you, Steve, went back and reread Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, which is a very different kind of encounter with virality. It's one that takes contagion as a given of human existence, but begins to examine it, the mechanics of it, um, and is really about how we perceive culture in a globalized world. And it's really interesting to read this book that uses contagion and virality uh, as a metaphor or descriptive mechanism for social change and the transmission of trends. I mean, there's there's some of it that's around actual diseases and there's discussion of syphilis epidemics and AIDS epidemics and, and the rest. But um, there's also a lot about like hush puppies and crime and, uh, you know, all court kinds of delightful anecdotes as one might expect to find in the work of Malcolm Gladwell. Um, but I think one, it, it's almost the reverse <laughs> Well, or maybe it's not the reverse. Neither of these texts is particularly interested in diseases as diseases, right? If World War Z uses the the fact of a spreading disease to to examine political and social structures and how they would respond to crisis and how well they are prepared or not prepared, in in the tipping point, the metaphor of the disease is essentially a tool that tries to help us understand how living in a globalized world feels and how it is 
now that more there are more humans, they can more easily encounter other humans. There is more freedom of travel and more freedom for all kinds of things to spread. Um, how that changes our experience of of the world. And the thing that struck me most about it, especially because we are probably here in the United States with six deaths reported and a hundred plus cases. Uh, approaching our own tipping point is that the tipping point is is there's an actual tipping point like what is the point at which the thing actually spreads and then there's a perceptual tipping point which is what's the moment at which you begin to grok oh wow this is everywhere um and they're not sometimes he's talking about the one and sometimes he's talking about the other and when you bring it back to actual contagion the distinction between the two seems more essential than it does when you're talking about hush puppies. Mm. Well, I read the uh, plague by Albert Camus, which I'd never read before. The supposedly existentialist. I mean, there's sort of two things people who hadn't read it might know about it other than obviously being about the outbreak of a plague in a modern Algerian city. Um, It's that it's an existentialist classic and that it's some kind of a parable or allegory for fascism. Actually, I I found both of those things a very, very limiting way to read the book, which I regard as great now that I finally read it, an absolute masterpiece of modern literature. It's less about, well, let me begin by saying that it, it it's so apposite because it takes this highly commercial Al- Algerian port city, a treeless city called Oran, a real city that, that Camus, who grew up in Algeria, was raised in Algeria, was familiar with. And it, um, and, uh, it goes under heavy lockdown of a kind that we're now seeing in China because of an outbreak of a rat uh, and and flea spread plague and kind of old fashioned medieval uh, bubonic um, uh, bacterium. And um, I would say the first thing that I note about the book is the incredible competence and seriousness of the prose, not self seriousness, but seriousness. It mixes an almost American hard boiled tone that derives from Hemingway, but even a little bit from Hammett and the detective writers, just an incredibly affectless factual kind of writing that emerged, I think, out of World War I when just bullshitting in a Victorian way about anything seemed inappropriate to modern experience. It mixes that with a rhapsodic French philosophizing, and the combination is narcotic. I mean, one could read this interminably. One could listen to Camus speak and write and observe forever. And the second thing I would say is it's it's mode of it's it's mode of attention. It's it's told mostly from the point of view of a doctor attempting to treat you know, ever more geometrically increasing uh, 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 numbers of patients. But it's it's really about, it's not existential in the sense like it's tritely reminding us that we should be aware of death in ways that modern life conduces us to be forgetful of it. In fact, it's a it's really a precise examination of modes of attention and inattention. And it treats the plague as a plague. It is not some hidden, you know, you know, Camus is a very secular writer. There's no sort of Old Testament sense that who we are is going to be suddenly sharply defined and refined by the fact of this disease. I mean, the book is devoted to the idea of human happiness, and it and it treats this in, in intrusion as an awful, awful tragedy. But but nonetheless, it does focus people's identity and attention in ways that are completely surprising. So so. 
faced with fascism or the plague, the least likely people turn out to be heroes in some instances. I mean, some some essence of who you are has to rise to the surface in order to in order to face it. And that's beautifully told. But the the, the I, I I will leave off by just saying that the that the, that the attentiveness of the prose itself to the physical details of a community suffering under excruciating disease that is going viral um is uh it, 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 that attention to detail is remarkable and quite believable i think because of camus experience in the resistance he was trapped in paris under the nazis and in contradistinction to sartre and de beauvoir fought the nazis with total daring do and heroism and that seriousness is what is in the bones of this book. So I highly recommend it to anyone who's never read it. Huh. I am among those who have never read it. That reminds me of um, uh, Rebecca Solnit's book, uh, A Paradise Built in Hell, which is her sort of journalistic and essayistic chronicle of the communities that form in the midst of disaster. And yeah. it's a is an attempt at a sort of counter narrative to you know to something like the road, where the focus is on at the at the hint of disaster, society falls apart and it becomes every man for himself. This is you know accounts of of in actual disasters. What happens is that people band together, they support each other, and they do so not only with like a grimness of purpose, but with like real joy um, that they find meaningful work uh, within the context of. Of banding together uh, and and sustaining a community through some kind of a disaster. Yeah, Dan, that's beautifully put. I mean, solidarity becomes necessary to survival. The whole is stricken. The whole must react as a whole. I mean, it's a very moving aspect of this book, Julia. It strikes me that the common theme among all three of us is that, in one obvious sense, this is a natural disaster or an act of God or however you want to put it. It is nature, and somehow, in some ways unexpectedly interacting with us in ways that are biological and and natural at the same time how do you ever separate that out from the human dimension of the political dimension of how we react to it how we deal with it and how we allowed it to happen i'm curious because the gladwell is probably the least directly apposite to a you know outbreak of a disease did it did it in any way sharpen your sense of the relationship between you know, virality as we understand it in the digital space and virality as we're going to come to acquaint ourselves with it during what may be an epidemic. I think what it did is highlight for me the degree to which the situation we're in is unprecedented because, because we haven't faced so communicable and uncertain a disease, it seems, at a moment that's ever been this global. I mean, even just the difference in the last... 20 years since uh, SARS in the early aughts or whatever, 15 odd years in the mobility of people in China and just what China looks like um, is is exponential, not to use a word that is sort of cliched in these contexts, but I also think apt. Um, and so the, the possibility of the communication of everything from diseases to ideas is so much more than it was even at the turn of the millennium, right? And you sort of, there's something about living in the new, a new millennium where you're like, we're in the future now. And it's 
you, you, it's kind of hard to fathom how different 2020 is from the year 2000, even if we all know we didn't have iPhones back then and whatever else. But it really is substantially different from the world we lived in at the moment of SARS, which is essentially, I think, just just after Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book. So we w things are more communicable, and we have an increased ability to perceive their communication, right? If, if, if this were 20 or 30 or 50 years ago, what would we even all know about what was going on in Wuhan? Would people in Wuhan have been traveling all over the world in the way that, that uh, has propagated the disease in the gestation period um, that we seem to be seeing that, that would have allowed the spread? And then would we have this sense of, okay, well, we can all sit in our homes and we can watch Contagion again and try to remember or misapprehend its lessons while we <laughs> while we think about what it means to live in modern society. It's all it's all transforming quickly even from the moment when the book was written yeah i think that the real difference i mean the the what's revolutionary now is not even so much how much more communicable the disease becomes because of how because of the the way that society has opened up but how much communication we can do about the disease and that's led to me to to a pretty interesting situation where julia you talked about the difference between the real tipping point of a virus and the moment the tipping point of our recognition of the virus and its import. But it seems to me that this is the first case where we have been truly ahead of the game, like so far ahead of the game, that people are responding to uh, a virus as if it is a pandemic and and it is not truly yet, at least within the within the constraints of the United States, right? I mean, maybe this will turn out to be wrong. And actually right now at this moment, the moment that we record, you know, thousands of cases are incubating in the US. But right now people, I feel like are behaving as if we have reached a tipping point when it's not clear that we necessarily have, right? right. So as the example I'll give, right now the um, creative writing world is in this total uproar because AWP, the Associated Writing Programs Conference, was is this weekend in San Antonio. And San Antonio just happens to have declared a public health emergency uh, yesterday because of a number of cases in military quarantine at an Air Force base in the city. Almost everyone who came from the, uh, the coronavirus cruise ship uh, and came back to the United States has been in quarantine in an Air Force base in San Antonio. And and so the creative writing world is just basically like in flames. People are bailing out of this conference by the score. Panels are getting canceled. They just announced last night that the conference will go on. Yet in the last 24 hours, like two dozen people I know who were previously going have decided at the last minute to just eat the plane fare and cancel it. But yet at this moment in San Antonio, there has only been one confirmed case of someone with a virus not in military quarantine. And so like the the disproportion of the response because of the enormous amount of information that we can get and the way that our brains take the like the information we get and immediately narrativize it, immediately set it going on its merry path along the story of apocalypse that we have all heard so many times and can easily imagine, like that it seems to me has created a situation where we are so far ahead of reality in a way that feels unfamiliar to me. Mm. I egged on a little bit yeah. by medical professionals who seem freaked out by the exact nature of the 
virus, its transmissibility, its you know subsequent effects. I mean, it's not entirely a narrative construct that this might be pandemic. No, not at all. But it isn't. But it seems to me that people are behaving right now as if it's one month from now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing we're experiencing right now is the difference between having access to a wealth of information and the distance between that and any knowledge or certainty or insight about what that means about how we should act, how we should behave as a society, whether it's rational to make a run on all the Purell at the Costco or sort of stupid comfort that that is irrelevant to what the actual trajectory of the disease will be. I mean, I think we are, the, the news reports suggest to me that we are past a tipping point in the United States with multiple instances of community spread in multiple states and and that things will get worse before they get better. But that's, you know, my non-scientific uninformed conclusions based off of having a wealth of information that I'm trying to interpret without without the clarity that anybody would like, you know? All righty. Well, obviously all of our fingers are crossed that this is as contained and as um, ultimately trivial as it possibly could be. We will watch it play out. All right, moving on. All righty. Now is the moment in the podcast when we endorse. Dan, what do you, what do you have? Uh, I have two things. One, because I meant to mention it during our tomboy uh, sequence, but then forgot to, which is just, there's a really great comic uh, for, like high school readers called Tomboy by Liz Prince, which is about which is a great memoir about growing up a tomboy uh, and what what that is like, and is a, sort of a great introduction to that uh, like cultural signifier for a generation that is not maybe as familiar with that cultural signifier as we were when we were growing up. It's a great book. But my uh, the endorsement I had intended to make for today uh, is the – I'm endorsing the Pitchfork Sunday Review. Um, so now the, the older I get, the less I find myself able to really make great use of regular Pitchfork reviews. Like I just no longer understand the cultural connotation of a 7.6 the way I once did. But every Sunday, Pitchfork runs a long critical essay on an album that the site has never reviewed before, and that sometimes means something recent. More often, it means something from the 70s, 80s, or 90s, and these pieces are inevitably totally fascinating. They're always by really good critics, uh, Lindsay Zolads or Eric Harvey or Stephen Kearse. Um, Half the time, it's like a very thoughtful new look at an album that I already know really well, but that maybe I haven't read anything about recently or or never. It's something like Redheaded Stranger by Willie Nelson or Tracy Chapman's first album or Super Duper Fly by Missy Elliott. But the Sunday Review has also done what I always hope great criticism will do, which is it has introduced me to records that have become part of my regular listening rotation that I've totally fallen in love with, even though I totally miss them the first time around, like um, Benny Mopin's The Jewel and the Lotus or Talk Talk's Spirit of Eden or Lamont Young's Well-Tuned Piano. I have discovered those albums because of great essays in the Pitchfork Sunday Review that have given me the context from which these albums came and a little bit of a story about their creation and then made an argument for why they are great listening experiences and worth knowing about and understanding. So check it out every Sunday on Pitchfork, the Pitchfork Sunday Review. Oh, that's very cool. Uh, Julia, what do you have? 
Well, in the spirit of our conversation about virality, I would like to recommend to you all a video that first went viral as best I can tell in 2014, but which only just arrived at my shores uh, this month, um, or maybe even last month since it's early March, uh, and hopefully does not indicate that even if the coronavirus out- outbreak is largely quashed, someone will get coronavirus in <laughs> 2026. <laughs> Probably that is what will happen. Anyway, um, this video is called Camera Falls from Airplane. And then something dramatic happens at the end. And I won't tell you what it is. And we'll put a link to it on our show page. All right. Well, I have two quick endorsements this week. The first is, you know, everyone freaks out about AI. The machines are going to start to think they probably do already. They're going to start to, uh, you know, take over our toasters and our cars and finally um, kill us. Uh, This is the most overblown, ridiculous fear because of a conceptual error. Machines will never, ever be able to think, which I firmly believed was a philosophical proven. Some people may regard that as an oxymoron. I don't. There's just a categorical difference. uh, It's a category error. There's just a difference between what mechanical computation is and thinking is. And that, that, that is a gap that will never be bridged by a machine. So we don't need to worry about it. Well, it turns out someone who actually knows computers better than a your average philosopher wrote the um, cover story for the American Scholar this month. It's called No Ghost in the Machine by Mark Halpern. Um, and uh, artificial intelligence isn't as intelligent as you think. There are many people with a name like Mark Halpern. This is the Mark Halpern who was a uh, member of the IBM Programming Research Division in 1957. Um and uh, has worked for software companies ever since. So he seems to know what he's talking about. But his point simply is that we've we've done this for millennia. We invent a new kind of machine, and then we analogize from the machine to our human essence and vice versa, and get hopelessly confused about the two. And then when we invent some new miraculous machine, we completely drop the previous machine as a commanding metaphor for what thought or human essence is um, and just move on. So, And then we're going to do the same thing with computers. Computers do not think. Computers are not brains. Brains are not computer. And it was just refreshing to have someone make this argument from an authoritative, technologically authoritative point of view. And then very quickly, uh, the Swedish duo's first aid kit. I don't know if I've endorsed them before, if I haven't. The album Stay Gold is amazing, but especially the song uh, Shattered and Hollow. It's just, these guys are so, so good. Tight, harmonizing sisters from Sweden. What else could you ask for? It's it's incredibly beautiful music. Highly recommended. Would you like to know how many times you've previously endorsed First Aid Kit? Yeah, please. How many? Uh, twice. <laughs> <laughs> they must be that that's, good. Third time's the charm. Good. Let's go for the hat Can trip. I respond? <laughs> can I respond briefly to your first endorsement? So uh, it, it just ties up a couple things on our show around our entrancement with technologies. Um, I heard a story, which may be legend, that um, the, the uh, longtime congressman, Barney Frank, hated email and loved the telephone, and that his line on this preference of his was that if the iPhone had somehow been invented first or computing had somehow been invented first or email and we could all email each other and then 
in like the year 2007 or whatever it was, Steve Jobs stood up on a stage and was like, I've invented a device that will allow you to pick up an object, which will be connected through an infinite string of wires to another object somewhere else. And when you do, you will hear the voice of a loved one and be able to talk to them in real time with great speed. We would all be like, oh my God, what an advancement. <laughs> That's so much better than this asynchronous writing back and forth bullshit. Give me a telephone. Can't fucking wait to talk on the telephone and that our collective delusion that email is an advancement on the telephone rather than a, a retreat from it um, is 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 insane, which I find very persuasive, just hearkening back to our, our um, conversation about the power of voice. So uh, hopefully that's encompassed in that Helper essay. I assume I'll just assume it's in there. That's great. That is wonderful. God bless Barney Frank. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. We love it when you email us at culturefest at slate.com. Uh, please do it. It really makes our week. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Dan Coyce and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. We said we are gonna get out of here. We said we are gonna get out of here. From all the fears, follow what we want to be. One more, we get out of here. Save big money on plant protection supplies now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save